Lord, I just think of that passage in Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Um, Lord, you wanted this death to happen. You desired this death to happen. Help us to understand the why, the how, what this means, Lord, as we talk about this why. And Lord, really help it not just to be words that we hear and we just go on. Help us not on Sunday just to say that was fun and then just go have a family get together, Lord. No, Lord, let this be life-changing and really, Lord, to seek you on this in all ways and all things. Grant us a understanding of this in your name. Amen. I heard a pastor teach one time that communion is the closest that you can get to being at the cross. It's trying to grasp and understand what Jesus went through. And I just want to let you know the vision for tonight is this. We're going to teach on the history of what his death was. We're going to talk about the theology of what his death was. And then we're going to talk about the practicality of what this means for us today. It's always touchy ground to get into the history of what his death was on the cross because there is this tendency sometimes to just dramatize it and just almost make it gory just to get a shock value out of it. Anytime I've ever taught on what it meant for Christ to be crucified, I try to just present the facts of it to understand what he went through. So let's just talk about the history of this here for a second. If you look at the timeline that got us to him being crucified, they had done the Last Supper, they've done their Passover meal, and then they had moved to the garden to pray. Now, as they had moved to the garden to pray, Jesus now has been up for probably about 24 hours, because it was now early morning here, late night. He is arrested in the garden. As he's arrested in the garden, he's first taken to one of the high priest's house, and he's taken to another high priest's house, then he's taken to Pilate's house, and then he's over to Herod, then he's back to Pilate, and he goes through all these different trials, and at different moments of this trial, he's beaten at times. Uh, eventually, he is beaten to the point of just being so bloodied, his beard is pulled out, he has a crown of thorns put on his head, and he's then eventually scourged. Now, the way that the Romans would scourge was very simple. They would have this whip, and at the end of the whip, they would have pieces of metal or bone or sharp stone. And as it would lay into your back, it would also curve. And so as that actually is being pulled out, it would actually pull out chunks of, of your flesh. It was not unheard of that at the back of a man, after he would scourge, that you could possibly see ribs and to the point of even vital organs. His back is literally laid open. He has not slept now in a day and a half. He has been pummeled in his face, bleeding profusely. And then you have to carry this cross beam of the cross. And that cross beam could weigh up to 300 pounds. And so that's on his shoulders. And that's why as he's carrying this, the Bible says he collapsed. He's 33 years old. His back is laid open. He's been up for a day and a half. I'm sure they didn't feed him. His body is falling apart physically, and then they throw possibly a 200, 100, 300-pound beam across your shoulders. He collapses. It's not an exaggeration, as it says in Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, astonished at you, at your visage, that you were marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. That's quite the statement in the New King James. That his visage, his appearance is marred more than any man. The NIV says it a little bit more straightforwardly. It says this. There were many that were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. And his form marred beyond human likeness. 
The idea that if you would have saw Jesus as they're getting ready to put him on the cross, that you would actually stop for a second and say, is that a human being? Because he had just been so torn apart in pieces. Then as you get to the cross, they put you on the cross laying flat on the ground. And they would, you guys know, they put a couple spikes. And generally we always think of the spikes through the hands, but that would have ripped your hand out. So a lot of people believe they put the spikes actually through your wrist right here. If they did put it through the hand, they would have to tie your wrist to the cross because it would have fallen out. And a lot of times they think they put both feet over top and put one spike through both feet. Sometimes you would turn the feet, put a spike through it that way. So from this perspective now, you have literal spikes through your hands. You have this crown of thorns. Your beard's pulled out. You've been beaten. You've been spit upon. Your back is laid open, and now you're up against a cross. And they would put this little piece of wood at the bottom of the cross that would rest your feet on. And the reason they would do that is because you have to push yourself up. Because there's this idea that when your arms are out straight like that, you have to lift your body up to breathe. And every time you're lifting your body up to breathe, what the pain must be doing to your back is just an unbelievable thing. And as this is happening, crowds are jeering at you, cheering your death, mocking you. And the first words out of the mouth of Jesus on the cross are what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. And as this is happening, his mother is sitting there watching him. And I don't care how old you are. I tell you, I've been in a lot of end-of-the-life moments. And it doesn't matter if your son or daughter is in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. If you're a parent and you're watching your child go through that, that's horrendous. That is what actually happened. And I, and I just want you to remember Isaiah 52, 14. Astonished, his appearance is marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men that this was a beating beyond a beating that we could even envision. We just can't even envision what this has gone through and what this individual just looked like, what Jesus actually looked like. I just want to read out of the New Living Translation as well, too, because just the way it reads, it's just absolutely amazing just to stop and just think about what they're actually saying that he went through right here. It says, They were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Like I said, we just can't even imagine what that is. And then, as they take it now, you're on the cross, and as they get ready to put the cross up, they have to now put the cross up. They're not doing this gently. It was not uncommon at that time for bones to be knocked out of joint. And then you just hang there. And according to Roman historians, sometimes you hang there for two to three days. Just hang there. Everybody walking by, mocking, your body falling apart physically. And if they wanted to speed up the death process because it was taking too long, they would go break your legs. Because then you would have two broken legs to push yourself off of to breathe. It, it was, dare I say, the perfection of pain and the perfection of torture and the perfection of death. And that's what Jesus Christ went through. And then it says in Isaiah 53... It pleased the Lord to do this. That's just fascinating. It pleased God to do this. So we've covered the history side of it. We've covered the factual side of it, of what he actually went through. And if you were not a believer, and I came and explained this to you, I would assume the first question you would ask is, why? Why? Why would God take the form of a man to do this? 
This is why we're now in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. We've covered the history. Now let's do the theology. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, verse 11 of Hebrews 9, with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so right there is what we find out is this. The blood of Jesus had to be the sacrifice to take away sins. His own blood. His own blood. So, we're starting to learn the theology of this. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So, if the blood of bulls and goats could cover up a sin, how much more could the blood of God completely erase a sin? 15, and for this reason, he, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So Jesus' blood gives me the eternal life that I need. Okay, but why did it have to be blood? 9.22 now, same chapter. According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So it has to be blood because blood is the only currency accepted to pay off the debt. This is something that was established way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember correctly, when Adam and Eve sinned and they made their own little fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. God said that doesn't count. You can't cover up your own shame. I have to cover up the shame for you. And so animals had to die. Animals had to die to become a skin for Adam and Eve to wear. So you see, back from when sin entered in Genesis 3, there had to be death to cover. And you see now how this passes through. In Genesis 3, for every human that sinned, some animal died. Okay, fast forward now to Passover and Exodus. Now you have one lamb that dies for each family. Fast forward now to the Day of Atonement. Now you have one lamb that dies for the entire nation. Fast forward now to Christ. You have one lamb that dies for the entire world. There has to be the shedding of blood. Okay, but why couldn't the law take care of this? Hebrews 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The law can't make you right. It can just cover it up. Verse 2. For then they would have not ceased to be offered. If the law could really fix your sins, why did we have to have animals die every morning, every evening, every day of the year? For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. If an animal could really take away my sins, it would be done. It doesn't. Verse uh, 2. For then they would have not ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Here's the key for it. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. Who can? Jump to verse 10, same chapter. By that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ is the only one that can take away sins. So now, verse 19 of Hebrews 10, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, you get to now go into the presence of God. Presence of God by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. 
having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. We've covered the history side of what it is. We've covered the theology of why it had to be Jesus. Because animals couldn't do it for you. It had to be a sinless sacrifice. Because if it was a sinful person... Listen, I could go to the cross for your sins. My sacrifice wouldn't be accepted. Because somebody has to die for my sins. Jesus is the only one. It had to be a sinless sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. It had to be. Now, since we believe this, what are we supposed to do with it? Go back to 19 with me. Enter in. Go deeper. You now can go to God. You have boldness to go to the throne of God. Verse 22, draw near. Draw near. Then verse 23, hold fast, hold tightly, hold unswervingly. And not you just hold on. Verse 24, consider one another, look around the body of Christ. And then verse 25, encourage one another with this. This is what we're supposed to do. Jesus has so changed me, I want him to change you, so that's why I go tell you, and you're so encouraged, you go tell somebody else. And then there's supposed to be this effect of where it just affects everybody. Because we know him. But the key word there is know him. Can you go with me now to Philippians, please? Chapter 3. Here's the deal, folks. Not everybody wants to know him. Do you realize the world stops turning a couple days a week? Excuse me, a couple days a year. Christmas. The world stops turning. Not because there was a baby born, but because school's out, people get time off from work, and we have celebrated the idea of gift giving. We've made it an idol. Then the world stops turning in the spring for Resurrection Sunday, but except we don't call it Resurrection Sunday, we call it Easter. I encourage you to use the words Resurrection Sunday because that's really what it's about. Schools will shut down again. People will get time off from work. And once again, we will have a lot of family get-togethers. Why? Because that's just what we do. The subject probably won't come up with the resurrection. The question comes up as a world, as an individual, do you really want to know him? Because I bet you so far I haven't taught you anything that you guys don't know. I don't think anybody ever sat here and said, I never knew he was crucified. I didn't know what that was. And I bet there was no one here that sat here tonight saying, I didn't know that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. I didn't realize it had to be Jesus. I didn't know I was supposed to tell people about it and get together as a church. I didn't know this. But do we want to know it? Take a look here at Philippians 3. Verse 9 is a great theological verse. It says, Being found in him, Jesus, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. I can't have righteousness on my own, beginning in nine. I have to have the righteousness of God. Please remember the righteousness is just a fancy word that means to be made right. You can't make yourself right. I was talking to someone recently, and the subject of salvation came up. And then I asked them, how do you, where do you want to go? And they said, they want to go to heaven. I said, how do you plan on getting there? They said, by doing good. I said, do you really think you can do enough good? I said, do you think you've done more good than bad in your life? They sat and they said, no. They don't think they've done more good than bad. 
So even by their own idea, as long as I do more good than bad, and that's really kind of a false teaching of a lot of cults you're going to run into. As long as I do more good than bad, I'm in. But according to Philippians 3.9, I, I don't have any righteousness. In fact, Isaiah 64 says that all my good works are like filthy rags. On my best day, I'm still an unholy mess. So if I don't have any righteousness in verse 9, the only righteousness I have is from God through Christ by faith. But now, once again, I don't think I've taught you anything you don't know yet. Here, here's where we're going to start losing some of you. And I don't mean losing your attention. I mean, is this what you want? Take a look at verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, now i got to ask you, do you want to know him? I mean, do you really want to understand the power of his resurrection? Because you're going to hear on Sunday a whole awful lot about the tomb being empty. And I'm just going to tell you the points I'm going to hit Sunday because I hit them every single resurrection Sunday. Since the tomb is empty, you have victory in Jesus. Since death has been defeated, you have victory. There is nothing bigger you're going to face than death. Nothing. So if I can assure you of your salvation, and if I can tell you you don't have to fear physical death, that means there's nothing else in this world that you have to be afraid of. There's nothing else that matters. I know where I go, I spend eternity. I know that death has been defeated through Christ. I know that the tomb is empty. So therefore, I know the power of his resurrection. That's all that matters. And not only knowing the power of the resurrection, knowing the power that gave him the resurrection. You don't need to turn there, but Romans 8 says this, a really powerful verse, verse 11. It says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So basically it's saying this, if the power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, do you have life. So if death couldn't defeat Jesus, death can't defeat you because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells inside of you. That's the power of his resurrection. But that's Sunday's teaching. Because the second half of 10 says this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. See, here's the deal, folks. We want Resurrection Sunday. We want sunrise service because we want the donuts that happen afterwards. We want to sing, Up from the Grave He Arose. That's what we want to sing that Sunday morning. We want the whole celebration of that day of just joy. And the world wants it too. They just want to call it Easter. They want to spend more time picking out what clothes they're going to wear on Sunday than worrying about the grave being empty. They want to spend more time collecting Easter eggs than worrying about the grave being empty. And they want to buy Easter baskets and give them to grandkids and kids. And they want to focus more on that than they want to do about the grave being empty. See, they want the power of the resurrection. They just want fun, life, good weather, days off from school, and a lot of candy. And you hear me make this joke a lot. We're going to get together on a Sunday to celebrate the grave being empty. But we will never mention the grave being empty. And for some reason, we will eat ham, the most un-Jewish of all foods, but we will eat it on the day that the greatest Jew that ever lived raised from the dead. That's what we want. But you can't have the power of the resurrection, verse 10, unless you understand the fellowship of the sufferings. You can't. And we want to skip over the fellowship of the sufferings. We want to skip the ugliness, the ugliness of, of death. 
and blood and his vision being marred more than any other man. Can you go with me, please, to Romans chapter 8? We were watching a show with the boys a while ago, and uh, it showed a birth. And it showed, you know, and you know how it's like there once the baby's born, they always show the picture of the mom holding the baby. And the mom always looks nice, like she just got some makeup put on and her hair looks really pretty. She hadn't been up for 36 hours in labor. And the baby's the beautiful baby. I mean, just clean, whatever. I've seen five kids being born. It's an ugly event. But we don't talk about that, do we? We have, we have one birth video that Dawn says she'll never watch because she doesn't need to relive that one in any way whatsoever. We skip that stuff. We just want to go to the cute picture of the baby in the swaddling clothes all looking nice and pretty and mom looking all done up. There's a lot of ugly that has to happen to get to that point. A lot of ugly that has to happen. Guys, a lot of ugly happened to get you into heaven. A lot of ugly. And we have to talk about it. Take a look at Romans 8. Start with me in verse 16. Let's jump back one more time. Verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, I want to talk about that. I'm adopted. I I was a child of Satan going to hell, and then Jesus died on the cross. I accepted him, and he says, Hey, I'll adopt you. You're mine now. I'm not Jewish. I'm not a son of God. I'm a fleshly, sinful human being. And God says, I don't care. I'll take you because you want me. I'm adopted. Let's talk about that. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. I want to talk about that. I'm a child of God. That's an amazing thought. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Let's talk about that. I'm not only an heir of God. I'm a joint heir with Christ. All the glory and rewards and everything that Jesus Christ receives, he wants to share with me. I want to talk about that. But what about the bottom of 17? If indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. So so let me get this straight. If I want the power of the resurrection, I need to also have the fellowship of his sufferings, according to Philippians 10. If I want to be a joint heir with Christ, Romans 8, 17, I also have to be willing to suffer with him. See, guys, it's a package deal. You want the blessings of eternal life, you've got to also have the sufferings of his death. Now, I'm not called to go to the cross and suffer like he did, but Jesus made it abundantly clear in the Gospels that if you're going to follow me, you're going to suffer like I suffered. Some of the other translations say this about Philippians 3.10, that you need to participate in his sufferings. One translation say, I want to suffer with him to become like him. Be honest, please. Have you ever prayed that? I prayed to be adopted. I prayed to be a child of God. I've rejoiced in the joint heir with Christ, but I've never once said, oh, Lord, please let me fellowship in your sufferings. Lord, please help me to suffer like you suffered. No, as soon as any of us, any of us find the smallest glimpse of suffering or pain, what's the first thing we pray for? Lord, make it stop. Make it stop, Lord. One of the hardest verses I have to tell people, and it took me years to reach a point to be able to look them in the eyes to say, hey, glory and tribulations. 
Because, you know what, if I as a pastor am keeping you from this theological point, you're missing out on blessing, and I don't want you to miss out on blessing. Sometimes you're blessed by suffering with Christ. You're blessed by being a joint heir of the suffering with them. You're blessed by glorying in tribulation. But no one wants that, do we? Lord, just make it stop. But what happened if I would say, but you don't, you don't get it. If you would suffer with Christ, like Philippians says, and Romans says, and John 16 says, the Bible says you'll be blessed. No, I'll skip the blessing, just make it stop. What would happen if we would think eternally? What would happen if we would think like Christ? Just a couple quick passages on this before we get to the practical thing. What did Christ go through in the garden? You don't need to turn to these verses. It says in Matthew uh, 26, 37, And he, meaning Jesus, took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Sorrowful and deeply distressed. Mark 14, same account, says this. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Luke twenty two forty four says that he was in agony. That phrase, deeply distressed, that's the strongest Greek word in the Bible for depression. That you can't get any lower than that. In fact, it says in Luke's account that he was praying and bleeding blood. He was in such agony. Hebrews 5 says that he was wailing and lamenting. See, we almost have this picture of Jesus in the garden before the cross of like, he's just going to go over and by himself. He hits his knees, a little bit of crying, and saying, oh, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. No, guys. He's broken. I mean, he's distressed, agony, sweating drops of blood, suffering, wailing, lamenting. What does it say in Isaiah 53? It pleased God to do this. There's a whole depth to his death that we just don't get. We just want to skip over and get right to the Easter baskets. We need to understand his suffering, his wailing, his lamenting, his agony. Why? Because he's taking sin on him for you and me. He is being the sacrifice that you and I couldn't do on our own. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He that knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He took the punishment for us in a way that we can't even grasp, fathom, or imagine. And to be completely blunt with you, we take for granted. We kind of just skip over it. In many circles, we call it Good Friday really not a good Friday. It's a pretty low point. It was such a low point that the sky went dark for three hours from noon to three. It was such a low point that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Please note, he didn't cry that out while he was being beat, while he was getting his beard pulled out. He didn't cry that out with the crown of thorn on his head. And he didn't cry it out while his back was laid open to where he could count his ribs. He cried it out when the sin of the world was on his shoulders that separated him from fellowship with God the Father. That's what made him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And to be quite honest with you, if someone came to me and said, James, here's the offer. Physical pain that you can't imagine or three hours separation from God the Father. What would you take, James? Only three hours? Yeah, only three hours separation from God the Father. I'll take the three hours. But isn't that crazy? that Jesus did not cry out until he was separated from God the Father. It was not the pain. It was the separation from 
we take for granted our relationship with Christ so much that this boldness we have to the throne. And guys, we don't grasp it. We don't grasp how ugly our sin is and what Jesus had to go through. And that's why we stop for one service to say, can we try to remotely understand this a little tiny bit of what he went through? Because if you don't get this, Sunday morning doesn't really mean a whole awful lot to you. And if you don't get this, you're not going to really care about evangelism. Because you don't understand the cost that was paid. Parents, you get this. Sometimes what you pay for and do things for your kids, they don't understand the concept of money. They don't understand the concept of hard work. And so that Christmas morning, that birthday, that whatever, you have sacrificed a lot. And they open up the gift. And they're just happy they got it. As they get older, maybe they start to understand the price that was paid, maybe actually financially the time and energy that was put in it to actually make it happen. I hope tonight you guys start to get a tiny glimpse of the price that was paid to get you into heaven. And that should hopefully change the way you think. So I've told you about the history of it. I told you about the theology of it. Now I just want to finish with this, the practical of this. And I just want to spend about five minutes on this and then we're going to do communion. I just have three quick points What can we learn from the practical that we can actually take and apply to our life? First one is joy. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Christ still had joy on the cross. Please don't let that point go in one ear and out the other. He still had joy on the cross. The next time you have a bad day, don't lose your joy. Never let anything in this world take your joy. If Jesus could still have joy on the cross, no matter what he was going through, why would you allow anything in this world to take away your joy? You had a bad day at work and so you lost your eternal joy? Guys, that's stupid. Something didn't turn out the way you want and so therefore you lost your eternal joy? No. If Jesus could keep his joy on the cross, don't you think he set an example for us to follow? That there's really nothing on this earth that should ever steal my joy? He had joy on the cross. Never forget that. Numbers, point number two, practical. He was thinking about others. Two times he was thinking about others. First time, he was saying to John, Mary, woman, Behold your son, son, behold your mother. He, on the cross, while dying physically, still said, Hey, I need to make sure mom's taken care of. Number two, on the cross, he's leading someone to salvation. You guys know the story of the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Even in the midst of suffering and shame, what is Jesus doing? He's evangelizing. Do you realize how selfish pain makes us? I've done this myself, and I've seen other people. That when they go through a physical ailment in life, Go over to visit them. And the only thing they want to talk about is what? Their physical ailment. I don't understand that, guys. You're in the worst pain you've ever been in your life. I come over to visit. Wouldn't you want to talk about the goodness of God? Wouldn't you want to talk about anything else? Other, but instead, we want to rehash the pain. Let's talk about it one more time, how much it hurts. Let's talk about one more time, how much your life is miserable. I, I, I don't get that. I do it. And I don't get why I'm doing it. 
Did not Jesus set the example that even while in pain that you shouldn't be selfish? I know people that tell me, you know, James, I'd really like to serve more, but right now it's a really difficult season. I can't. But to be perfectly blunt, maybe you need to get over the difficult season and still serve. Don't let pain make you selfish. And if you're sitting there saying, yeah, but it physically hurts really bad. I'm not saying you need to physically go out and do something, but you can have a ministry of prayer. You can have a ministry of encouragement. You can have a ministry of writing cards. You can have a ministry of whatever. And I've told this to people and say, well, I don't think I'd be really good company right now. Well, then God love you. You need to get over your pain. And you need to still give even while you're hurting. Because never let pain make you selfish. Jesus didn't. And I'm usually at this point, someone says, yeah, but you don't know what I'm going through. I'm pretty sure your beard hasn't been pulled out, crown of thorns, spit on, beat, and your back's not laid open. And Jesus still found a way to stop and say, I'm going to make sure Mary's taken care of, and I'm going to make sure that this guy beside me is going to get to heaven. I tell you, the most joyful people I've ever met are some of the most unselfish people I've ever met. Because even in the midst of pain, they're stopping and saying, Lord, to you be the glory. To you be the glory, because that's all that matters. And lastly, what did Jesus have that we didn't have? He had a vision. And what was that vision? The cross. Go with me to Matthew 16, please. Matthew 16, to finish this up. I think a lot of times why we can't keep our focus in life is because we don't have a vision. We don't know what we're supposed to be doing. We just go to work, come home, and pay bills and repeat the whole process again. Can you imagine if you had an eternal vision where you knew exactly what God wanted you to do and you could just walk in that? And you would not let anybody get in the way of that? I I just want to ask you right now, and I'm especially going to ask the men, the head of the households, what's the vision for your family? And if you're here and you're not married, you still got a vision. What's the vision for your life? Ladies, what's the vision for your life? If, if, If I came to you right now and said, what is God wanting you to do with your life? I think the vast majority would say, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I guess be a good husband, be a good wife, provide for my family. Okay, good. You got that. What's deeper? I don't know. Can you imagine not having a plan for your life? I'm just going through life. How could Jesus handle the cross? Because take a look at Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then be raised the third day. Verse 21, he must do this. Must. Not maybe, could have, should have, thinking about it, planning on it. I have to do this. And I'm not going to let anything get in the way. 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. Did you understand the depth of this? That... Anytime something gets in the way of what God has told you to do, it's of Satan and not of God. And we need to rebuke it and say no. How often do we allow things in our life to get in the way of something deeper with the Lord? You may need to rebuke those things and say it's not of God, it's of Satan. And I'm not going to give you actual examples because for each one of you, it's personal. And I've noticed this, that if I give actual examples, I get some really offended people. I'm just going to say this. Some of the things that the enemy uses are good things. But they're really hindering you from going deeper in Christ Jesus.
Jesus knew his vision so much that he would look at Peter and say, Peter, you are being used by Satan, and it's an offense to me, and I need to rebuke you. Is, are you allowing things to get in the way of going deeper in the Lord? What are the practical things that we can learn from Christ? On the cross, he had joy, no matter what. He was focused on others, even in the midst of pain. And he was going to let nothing stop him from the plan that God gave him. Same things apply to us. Guys, you can have joy no matter what. You can, because your joy is not based on circumstances. It's based on Christ. Number two, you, even in the midst of physical, emotional, or spiritual pain, can still have an outreach potential to focus and minister on other people. Don't let pain make you selfish. And number three, get a vision. Get a plan. So that way, like Paul, at the end of his life, he can say, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What was one of the last phrases of Jesus on the cross? It is finished. Because he did what he was called to do. That's the practical to this. Now, with that being said, they can come in now for communion. I hope you understand the history of what actually happens, the death. I hope you understand the theology of the why. I hope now that you take Philippians 3.10 and you say, I want to know him. And I hope that this coming Sunday, you look at Resurrection Sunday as something deeper than just a fun family day with chocolate and food and the day off. And I hope that we stop and realize, Lord, I want joy. I don't want to be selfish in my pain. And Lord, I want a vision of what you want me to do. This is a great time for communion. If the people who are helping with communion want to come forward... I'm going to make this quick. We have an open communion policy out here at church, meaning we don't.